Welcome to Talking Beats. I hope you'll subscribe and give us a five-star review on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash talkingbeats. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash talkingbeats. We believe now more than ever in providing a platform for individuality, free thought, and a diverse range of views. By supporting the show this way, you'll get early access to episodes, bonus episodes, and much more. And remember, the conversation is always active at Talking Beats Podcast on social media. On today's program, infectious disease expert, Dr. Michael Osterholm. He's the chair of public health and the director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research at the University of Minnesota. A leading writer on infectious disease, he's been published in Foreign Affairs, Nature, and the New England Journal of Medicine. His best-selling book, Deadliest Enemy, Our War Against Killer Germs, published in 2017, is chilling right now in its relevance and prescience. I wanted to have him on for a reality check on where we are now in fall 2020 and what his outlook is for our ability to cope with the pandemic in the coming months. Dr. Michael Osterholm. It's an honor to be with you. Are you a pessimist? Are you a realist? Do you tell it like it is? Is this the Midwestern hard coming into winter? What, what are you seeing here as, as you put your nose to the grindstone? Where the hell are we, sir? Yeah, well, you know, I, it's all about context and it's all about just telling the truth. You know, I, I learned a long time ago that when in doubt, just tell the truth. And sometimes that means you have to say you don't know uh, and you just have to lay out what you know and what you don't know. Um, this virus, I think, has really much pretty followed a, a path that we had predicted for, for months. And, uh, and in fact, what's happening right now going into the post-Labor Day period, uh, you know, I had commented back in July that I thought this was going to begin the beginning of the most challenging part of the pandemic to date that we really hadn't seen uh, at all uh, the real full impact of this virus on our society. Today, you know, we're looking at a country where approximately 10 uh, to 12 percent of the population has been previously infected. Uh, these are just studies that have come out even this past week supporting that number. Um, and it's a number we've been using, actually, for the last month. Uh, that means that uh, we're a long ways from that concept of herd immunity, of having 50 to 70 percent of the population protected so that, in fact, transmission would just slow down, not stop. And uh, we surely would like to get there with vaccine, but I think we have to be realistic about what vaccine might or might not do. Uh, and I think right now we've gone from a period of pandemic fatigue where people are just tired of dealing with this virus to one of pandemic anger, where I see people who are categorically rejecting that this pandemic exists. It's a hoax, uh, potentially as high as a third of all of our population feel that way. And, uh, you know, even though we may have given up on the virus and said we're done, the virus hasn't given up on us. And I think that between what we're seeing with school openings in terms of colleges, universities in particular, we're seeing uh, in the general uh, public uh, a, a tremendous amount of transmission occurring, particularly in the upper Midwest right now, related to things like funerals, weddings, family reunions, uh, bars, restaurants, sporting events, some indoors and clearly even some outdoors where there's socialization that occurs after or before the game. 
And, you know, if you look right now across the upper Midwest, you're seeing these basically the levels of transmission that we saw in the beginning days that quickly emerged into the crises that Florida, Texas, Arizona, California, and uh, Georgia had back in July. And I think we're heading that way. But more specifically, uh, across the country, 27 states right now, as we speak today, are watching their numbers uh, grow up quickly. So I think you add that together with the fall indoor air season, uh, where more transmission is surely going to occur as we go indoors. I think we've got a really, really tough fall ahead of us. Because you said we had a really tough summer ahead of us in the spring. And I, I've, I've been watching you on TV. I, I try to catch you whenever you're on. And I always think that, that you do bring a, 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 a maybe a brutalistic approach, but you're honest. <laughs> and you're, you at least say what you think and you say what you believe the numbers tell you. I, how, in retrospect, the summer's done now. We're, we're in fall. How surprised or disappointed or satisfied, I doubt that would be the word, are you with how the summer went? You mentioned the Sun Belt, the so-called Sun Belt, where we had explosions, Florida, Texas, Arizona. If you look back at the summer, was it good or bad? I have to say that I guess anything that's been associated with this virus, the SARS-CoV-2 and the COVID-19 pandemic, has been bad. I don't see any silver lining in almost any part of it. Uh, I think it has, however, from our perspective, really followed a course that um, you know, I think has been predictable, which means that, in one hand, that does give us some advantage in dealing with it. The question is whether we want to take that advantage. If you look back in you know, the earliest days of this uh, emerging pandemic in China in the last week of December, you know, we were following that very closely. We had published even articles in our SIDRAP News about it. And it was very clear to us by January 10th to the 20th that this was going to emerge as the next pandemic virus. Uh, and I put out a piece on January 20th saying that. You know, it was met with a great deal of skepticism, but from our perspective, we had no doubt that it was going to be that pandemic strain and that it would likely take another month to six weeks before much of the world would see it just because of the time it would take to actually arrive in a given area and then build up from a small, uh, you might say, ember of fire to a forest fire. Can, and then sure enough, what you, happened? Can I just pause you very quickly and ask you right there, what, why did you see this one as different? I, you've been looking at diseases and infectious diseases your your whole career. You're known for, for studying infectious diseases and, and reporting on it. What, what about this in the early stages? Did you see that that made you maybe lose a little more sleep than you ordinarily would? Well, I, it was a process. It was not just one thing. Uh, early on in, in the situation in December, you know, many of us assumed, my, this could be the next influenza virus emerging, uh, which would not be good. And then we actually took some comfort in that first week of January as we were watching what was happening in Wuhan, that in fact, uh, influenza viruses had been pretty much ruled out. We had uh, social media contacts throughout that part of China, as well as I had several contacts on the ground. And so we were getting pretty direct information about what was happening in the Wuhan area. Into that first week of January, it became more evident this likely might be a coronavirus. And actually, at that point, I took some comfort and thought, well, this is not going to be a pandemic. This is going to be okay. Uh, and I say that because having been involved with SARS in 2003, I was at that time splitting my 
activities at the University of Minnesota and the Secretary of Health and Human Services in, in D.C., and actually was quite involved with the SARS response. And the same is true in 2012 with uh, the issue with MERS, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome and other coronavirus infection, where uh, I had been serving as an advisor to the royal family the, of UAE and uh, realized, you know, in terms of trying to deal with MERS on the Arabian Peninsula, the challenges there. And the one thing that kept coming back is that, number one, is that the animal reservoir could surely continue to be a source for the virus, but you can identify that and largely eliminate it. We said, as we did with SARS in 2003, have not yet been similarly successful in the Arabian Peninsula because the reservoir is dromedary camels, which are not going to all be put down. But we also understood with transmission was that you could really limit this virus transmission because of the fact that most people were not that highly infectious till day five or six of their illness. And if you could identify them in that time period, you could isolate them and literally stop the transmission from moving forward. That's why SARS was eliminated and MERS is still well controlled, even though the camels keep hitting us with virus. Well, so initially I thought, well, what's going to have to happen in Wuhan is that they're just going to have to find all these cases very quickly, get them isolated, and just like SARS and to a real degree MERS, this will be quickly brought under control. But by around the January 10th time period, as we were that at that point getting more information on the actual coronavirus itself, it had been confirmed, it had been sequenced, the Chinese shared it with the world. Um, we begin to see what had to be clear and compelling asymptomatic transmission. We are seeing more and more cases that did not have a contact with an, a sick person. And at that point, also, we're starting to see more widespread transmission, not just through Wuhan, but through the Hubei province, as well as now cases that week started showing up in Hong Kong. They started showing up in Thailand. And it was clear that this was different than SARS or MERS, which meant that, oh my, now this is, this is a whole new ball game. We're not going to be able to control this. And the speed at which it grew was just clear and compelling evidence to us that with this asymptomatic transmission, how are you going to stop this? And we saw no way that for that to happen. And so that was what really led us to the conclusion that this was going to be the next pandemic virus that we we're going to have to deal with. And as it has panned out, uh, not to use a wordplay at all, as it's panned out, basically it's gone according to plan. I, I remember you saying sometime in the midsummer when the spike in the Sun Belt was happening, you said that, that you were learning more and more about this disease, but as you learn more, in a way you understood less than you had six weeks before. Do you remember what you were talking about? Then what, what surprised you? Are you referring to the city of Houston? Yeah, absolutely. No, I remember it very well. Uh, and I still say that. I'm still learning a great deal about this virus. Uh, and I, in fact, I will often start out a talk with a disclosure statement saying that, you know, I, I know less about this disease overall today than I did six weeks ago. You may want to take whatever I have to tell you in that light. Um, but I think that what was, was clear from the epidemiology was that once we understood this issue of asymptomatic transmission, and we could see that happening, we very quickly began to realize that this was going to be a very dynamic process. We also saw early on the kind of transmission that would very much supported the idea that aerosols or airborne transmission played some role. You know, I think today we still are challenged by just the difference between many patients with COVID-19 who transmit to very few and likely droplets play a key role in that. 
versus those who are transmitting via aerosols or these very small tiny particles that float in the air for endless hours after they've been exhaled. And could, and could, we just, it, could I just put a finer point on that, if you would? This, this is you're talking about the difference between if you're in the supermarket and someone sneezes on you, rather than if you're in the supermarket walking down an aisle, the, the difference between the two of those, meaning aerosols and, and what being, being subject to a huge amount of direct uh, attack from, from the virus? Yes. In fact, just maybe put it into more, uh, I guess, contextual understanding here. Imagine what we exhale out as everything from the size of BBs to bowling balls. The bowling balls and those that are softball size or larger are really the ones that fall out relatively quickly after they've been exhaled or sneezed out or coughed out. And when I say they, they basically fall out quickly, they typically will drop to the ground or to a surface. We know now to, today it could be as, you know, as much as 12 to 15 feet away. It's not just six feet. But if, unless you are basically in the projectile motion of that particular bowling ball or softball and it gets into your uh, respiratory tract that way by entering right through your mouth or your nose or potentially in rare occasions even your eye, they're, they're now out of sight. They're gone. They're down into the environmental surfaces, which we know likely plays very little role in transmission from that standpoint. The aerosols, on the other hand, are those things that when I just talk right now in my office where I'm sitting, if you were to be able to film this with the appropriate camera equipment, you could see that this is a fine mist in here. And it's me just talking, exhaling these aerosols, which are the BBs, the small, small droplets, the small particle size, I should say. And uh, if people trying to understand that, think about the last time you were sitting in your living room and uh, the sunlight was coming through the window. You could see all this dust apparently floating in that sunlight stream. And you say, oh my, my house is dusty. Well, that's actually aerosols, those float. Another way to look at it, you're in the department store. You're four aisles away from the perfume section. You can still smell the perfume. Or you're walking down the street and you suddenly smell smoke and you look and see, you know, 40 feet ahead of you, somebody is smoking a cigarette. Those are aerosols. They float in the air for some time. So if somebody goes to that grocery store you just talked about, if they sneezed on me, that would be the droplets. That would be what I would be more concerned about there. But if I'm uh, worried about the aerosols, those people may have long left the grocery store. They're not even there anymore. And depending on what the ventilation system is like, the virus levels may be sufficiently high in these aerosols that if I can breathe them in long enough, basically I hit to a point of where we call the infectious doses reached, and now I get infected. And that was a key piece for understanding the dynamics of this pandemic that we saw early on saying it's likely that aerosols play an important role in this in this pandemic. That was rejected by many initially, but as I think you uh, and, and the listeners realize now, uh, there's a number of world experts in the area of aerobiology, uh, you know, industrial hygiene, uh, infection control, who very much support the fact that aerosols do play a key role. And they are likely the primary reason why we see many of these super spreading events, where we have many people who get infected from one individual church choirs, call centers. I mean, I can go on the laundry list of, of all those events. 
paint a picture where we are right now. We, we've talked a little about the initial reaction. Uh, but by the way, I, I you probably know that, that I'm, I'm not the most warmly felt podcast host in the world towards the Chinese government. I remember a, a tweet that the WHO, the World Health Organization, put out in January 2020, quoting Wuhan officials saying there's no human-to-human transmission. I, I keep seeing that tweet. I took a screenshot of it, and it, <laughs> it, it comes up sometimes as sort of just randomly on, on my iPhone, and, and it, it's almost, it, it haunts me. <laughs> I wonder how, how many people got very sick or, or maybe even died as a result of that one tweet, as a result of the WHO taking Wuhan officials at their word. Uh, this is just a side note, but it's, it's very bothersome mm-hmm. to me. No, I think you're right. And I, I think that uh, to place the the responsibility where it lies, it really is, uh, I believe, a function of local officials in Hubei province and Wuhan specifically that misled the world. Uh, you know, I have a sense that the Chinese national government and basically what would be the equivalent of the CDC of China actually took local officials uh, word that, in fact, that's what was happening. And even they, too, by by the second or third week, they surely changed. But even they, too, the first days felt as if this was not evident of person-to-person transmission. And whether they should or should not take in that information as such, but I think today we can hold uh, the Chinese uh, government surely a, a part of all of this, but it was really the local officials in Wuhan that misled the world. We're in fall. It's getting colder in some parts of the country. I guess in, in, in your part of the country, you're in Minneapolis. It's a beautiful, the, the gem of the Midwest. I, I always think of Minneapolis. <laughs> and uh, it's a wonderful city. There's a lot to enjoy outdoors there, but it happens to get pretty cold there. In a month from now, it's, it is going to be cold. It's probably still pretty nice. When it gets cold there, when it gets cold where I am in New Hampshire, it'll get colder even in the southern United States, in Alabama can freeze. So what is going to happen when the common cold comes back, when when flu season comes back? Obviously, not many people take the flu shot to begin with. Uh, and when the virus, the COVID-19 is still here, are the three going to mix in this very scary sort of hellish scenario? Yeah, well, let's unpack that kind of one at a time, because that's a very important question. And, and uh, I think you're really onto something here in terms of what our future holds for us. Number one, let me just say that indoor air is a huge challenge without regard to what the pathogen is. And that is because, you know, we've not built our, many of our buildings or our homes to actually provide us with lots of fresh air. Recirculation of air uh, to conserve heating or cooling, for that matter, is common. And uh, so when you're in an, an environment, indoor environment, oftentimes the level of these aerosols in particular can Uh, increase substantially. And this is a real challenge that when you're outdoors, you don't see that same problem. Now, I don't want to make it seem as if outdoor air is perfect. It's not. But, you know, when the uh, protest occurred right after Memorial Day and the horrible situation with George Floyd here in Minneapolis, you know, I, for one, just objectively said, you know, I don't know that this is going to result in a big increase in the number of cases with all these protests. Why? Because of outdoor air. It dissipates relatively quickly. And even though a lot of people together, it's not necessarily going to result in transmission. And sure enough, that's what we found. 
On the other hand, I, I was very concerned about what would happen at Sturgis, the motorcycle rally in, in South Dakota. And everybody said, well, what? That's not consistent. You know, somehow it's like a political statement. And I said, it's not about riding their motorcycles. It's about how many hours they spend in indoor bars, tattoo parlors, uh, casinos, and entertainment venues. And sure enough, we saw a substantial number of cases come out of Sturgis that was all about indoor air, really, not about out riding their motorcycles. And so this issue of indoor-outdoor air is important. And as you just pointed out, as we get into the cooler fall into the winter, we're going to see more and more people aggregated together. You don't have outdoor restaurants at that point. Uh, you know, you don't do a lot of socializing in the city park when it's 20 below. That means that you're going to have to be somewhere and most likely you're going to be in an indoor environment where transmission can be enhanced. Now, you raise the issue on influenza, which seasonally, of course, we see during our winter here and the winter of the southern hemisphere uh, in terms of increased occurrence. I'm not sure influenza is going to be a big issue this year. I hope not, at least. And when, you, when we look at what happened in the southern hemisphere over the course of their winter, our summer, there was very little activity in any of the southern hemisphere countries that we really closely follow, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, uh, countries in South America. And it's unclear exactly why that's the case. It could be that the mitigation strategies that were being employed by some of these countries clearly did contribute to reduce transmission of influenza, although I'm, 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 not, I'm not, I surely think that played a role, but I don't know how much because for some of the countries like New Zealand and Australia, there surely were also times when COVID-19 wasn't a major challenge in June, July, and there weren't the same kind of attention paid to distancing and face cloth coverings and so forth. So, but the bottom line is we don't know if it's going to happen or not. But in a given year, if you look, and we do a lot of research in influenza, only about 20% of the respiratory illnesses that we see, and some of them can be you know, pretty challenging, are actually caused by influenza. 80% are caused by other largely viral pathogens. So even if we don't see influenza this year, the question is going to be, we're going to see the other ones. And uh, could that enhance transmission? What does that mean? And we just don't know at this point. I have two questions, and you're going to think I'm very naive. I probably am. I'm a cellist, after all. <laughs> but one, <laughs> you're hardly naive. Trust me. <laughs> you know, rena Renaissance people would never be described as naive. <laughs> I'm flattered, uh, doc, Dr. Osterholm. So, so one question. This is a very general question, but I think a, a lot of people may be wondering how is it that something like the flu is is seasonal. I, I'm thinking of the image of of migratory birds. How how one day they they pick up and they're gone. I'm thinking about loons on the lake. You have those in Minnesota too. I think it's a state bird. And and one, <laughs> uh, they come back to the same body of water sometimes for thirty years, but they go at a certain point. They go. And uh, come April or May, they're, they're back. What is it with influenza, with a seasonal flu? Does it go away and just one day appear? Well, I tell you what, I'll make you a deal. If you can explain to me the black holes in such a way that I understand them, I will explain to you influenza in a way you'll understand. <laughs> okay? Um, this is a challenge. Uh, you know, we don't understand influenza seasonality at all. Two points. One is, first of all, it does increase substantially with each winter season, which people have attributed to, you know, drier air, you know, indoors and so forth. But nobody explains to you why it occurs year round in the tropics. It's a, it's, it's a disease of the tropics 12 months out of the year. Now, that's not dry air or cold air. 
On the other hand, you've also looked at, at influenza pandemics, the emergence of a new influenza strain. And there have been 10 such influenza viruses that have emerged over the last 250 years. Two started in our North American winter, three in the spring, two in the summer, and three in the fall. Every one of them had a first wave that occurred, and I call it a true wave because the cases increased for weeks and then suddenly just dropped off. Nothing humans did. In 2009, H1N1 showed up in Mexico in early to mid-March, peaked out in late April, early May around uh, the world, and then dropped precipitously, uh, didn't pick up, pick up again until late August, and then we had another second big wave uh, that continued to occur right through mid-October when a vaccine finally arrived, but it was already on its way out before a vaccine got here. Now, why does every time a pandemic occurs, you see the same pattern? And it doesn't matter which, which season it occurs in. If it starts in the winter, then it'll have the first peak up and down, just like that. Or if it starts in the spring, just like we saw with 2009 H1N1, why were we seeing such amazing flu activity in August? So, you know, we don't really understand this about flu. This is one of those mysteries that there is obviously a biologic answer, but we're not smart enough yet to figure that out. I am qualified to talk to you about music, Doctor. Uh, we always talk about music a little bit on this program, no matter who you are, because it really does bring people together uh, left, right, center, everywhere from here to the Philippines. Everybody loves music. What do you love? What does music do for you? You know, I have actually translated much of the history of my life through music. You know, I'm one of those people that can hear a song from the 60s or the 70s or the 80s or the 90s, 2000, and immediately I can associate a time and a place. And in some ways, it's almost as if it's my meditation. It helps me keep balance. It helps me remember where I've been, what I've done, where I'm going. You know, it also, in a sense, kind of, it, it appeals to your heart in a way because some of those songs were associated with young love. Some of those were associated with very dark times. And it kind of gives you a sense that way. But in the final conclusion, I would have to say, the one thing music does for me is it provides peace. I love good music, just to sit and just let it soak in. And in fact, I've actually said that I know that this pandemic will be over and that we will be in a whole new place when we can go into public venues and hear people like you play in such a way that we feel safe that that's occurring. And, uh, you know, until then, I've said to people, I will feel very uneasy, reluctant, if not outright, I won't go into public spaces and to hear them. And in fact, one night I was being asked this question on a, one of the cable talk shows, and I knew that they were trying to get me to engage in uh, criticism of the president and his, his uh, holding an indoor rally. And, you know, I've tried just to call balls and strikes and stay away from the politics. And so when I was asked if I would go to that, my answer was, uh, look it, if the four original Beatles were playing at Carnegie Hall tonight and I had a chance to go, I wouldn't go. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm looking forward to hearing you in person. And then I will know we have finally made it. I think that's a good way of putting it. By the way, I do usually, this summer I didn't, but usually I spend the month of August in Minnesota up in, in, uh, in the Lakes area, at the Lakes Area Music Festival, playing many concerts uh, indoors, so that it didn't happen this summer. I wasn't there, but, but maybe next summer, this, this I don't know, maybe that may be too optimistic, but hopefully next summer we'll, we'd be able to uh, realize that goal, and you could come back on this podcast and say, it's, it's over, I heard you play in person. Yeah, that's that's exactly 
exactly it. I, I would be the happiest person you could imagine if I could do that. I'd be happy for you. I'd be happy for me. I'd be happy for my kids, my families, my colleagues, my friends. I'd be happy for the world. You have a date set, young man. You have a date. I appreciate it. So if we go back to reality away from music, because music does take us away in, in, in the best possible sense. It takes us away from reality, or back to our memories, or somewhere else. But, but right now, when we get off this call, you're going to go study something. What are you concerned about? You've mentioned the Upper Midwest. Are you tracking the Upper Midwest, especially including your state right now? No, you know, I'm tracking the world right now, not just the Upper Midwest. I'm very concerned about what I'm seeing happen in New York, for example. New York was the one state out of all 50 states in the District of Columbia, that after having made some mistakes and really getting hit hard, very hard in April, did what no other uh, political entity in the United States has done. And that is they drove the number of cases down by their distancing requirements and then got them down to a point where instead of being a coronavirus forest fire, it was a series of small brush fires. And by doing that, they were able to and have been able to follow very carefully the positivity rates of uh, testing uh, to basically associate it back with a specific area, specific groups, specific activities. And they had done what no one else had done for the past 14 weeks of keeping the virus levels at a very, very low level. Grant you, New York City is not back to where it once was. The state of New York is not. But nobody did that. Minnesota didn't do it. None of us did. And so now seeing the numbers start to creep up in some of the neighborhoods in New York, this is very concerning because it just says this virus is so darn hard to contain. And if anybody can do it, it's New York. If they can't, we're in trouble. Now, if you look at the upper Midwest, yes, we're a house on fire right now. But this is going to continue to increase throughout the country. I mentioned earlier about all the states that are currently seeing big increases. I think that this, Dan, is going to be a challenge come late October, early November. I think we're going to see the case numbers rise, much like we saw this past uh, summer. Think about how we as Americans have, in a sense, acclimated to this disease, which is a horrible concept, a horrible concept. You know, when New York was a house on fire in April, we were 32,000 cases a day in this country. And we thought, this can't get any worse. And then, of course, we, you know, did do the distancing and drove it down. By Memorial Day, it was at 22,000 cases a day. Hardly did we get rid of it. We didn't. But we gave up at that point in a real way and said, okay, you know, summer's here, all the things we just talked about. And then we got to 67,000 cases a day in, in late July. Well, now cases have come back down again through Labor Day, and they got down to 32 to 34,000, the same level it was when the house was on fire and we were really concerned. And now we're sitting here saying, well, it's not so bad, it's not 67. But that 32 to 34,000 cases a day is now turning into 40, 45, 50,000 cases a day just since Labor Day. And that number is going to keep climbing right back up. So we kind of hit a peak, come down a little bit of plateau, hit another peak higher, come down a little bit of plateau. And this next peak is going to be a, do a doozy. And that's what really concerns me. And this next peak, is that going to be a real veritable next wave? Is that the right word, a wave? Yeah, you know, I, I, I kind of shy away from waves in the sense that that's what influenza viruses do, where they occur and then go away on their own. You know, there's kind of this first wave and a trough and a first wave. This is like a coronavirus forest fire that basically will find all the human wood it can to burn. 
Now, we may slow it down, just like real fire prevention does, fire you know, response. But if we don't put it out, it comes right back. And that's what's happening around the world. If you look at Europe right now, Europe is becoming a major challenge in terms of the countries, both in Eastern Europe, Western Europe. In many of those instances, they had driven the cases down to much, much lower than we ever did in the United States. But then what happened in early August to mid-August, they too got tired. They just let the break up without control. And we're seeing what's happening now. Now, grant you, they're still much lower in terms of case numbers. If you look at England, for example, uh, they have one-fifth the number of cases per population that we have here in Minnesota. But at the same time, they're talking about potential lockdowns to really slow down transmission. We're not even talking about that. We just keep talking about loosening up more and more, putting more into everyday life. And so I think that, I mean, just look at what's happened in California uh, or uh, in Florida, excuse me, in the last week. And the governor's opened up everything. Uh, you know, if that's not an invitation to have another huge forest fire in Florida, I don't know what is. And that's what's going to really, um, unfortunately, play out over the next uh, weeks to months ahead. Give us a little advice. Obviously, cloth face coverings are all the rage. They have them in different designs. You can get one. I had got one with footballs on it because I'm a football fan. Is, is that good enough for, for someone to, to think, I can go to the grocery store and put on my, my homemade cloth covering that, that, that Susie knit down the street? Yeah. Well, let's just take a step back and look at respiratory protection because we've kind of mixed up these masks as one generic term and they're not. N95 respirators, which are the ones we want healthcare workers to have in particular, function in two very specific ways. One is that they have very tight fit. They are actually fitted to your face. If you even have a beard, they don't work. Um, and if you think about that, when's the last time you had swim goggles that leaked at the glass? They don't. They leak at the fit. So fit is critical. The second thing is you have to have material you can breathe through. I could have perfect fit with cellophane and I'd suffocate within minutes. So what is it that allows air through in a reasonable way and at the same time stops the virus, which is so small, it just can't be kind of, you know, a mesh up there. And what N95s are actually have an electrostatic charge in that material that you breathe through that actually collects the virus as it comes through and prevents it from getting all the way through, but allows air through. Those are the ideal. Those are what really protect you. Surgical masks, which are the ones that tie behind the head or around the ear and just fit up against your face, were always meant to actually protect somebody else, meaning that if I'm a surgeon, I may be dribbling my uh, respiratory secretions into the wound of a surgical patient that I'm working on. They weren't really made to prevent me from getting infected. Well, now in retrospect, we recognize they may actually have some impact in preventing particular droplets, those big boulders I talked about, from getting in. But think of all the loose sides of those. You know, if air is not going to go through the, the actual material anywhere as quickly as it's going to go in and out the side vents, it takes the path of least resistance. So now you add in face cloth coverings, which are a variety of any number of different things. They have virtually little to no tight fit. And the material is such that air moves relatively through it, which very well can let virus through. So our whole message has been is, you know, wear face cloth coverings. Definitely wear them. But think of it as a layering effect. Think of it as like that 15 pieces of, pieces of Swiss cheese on top of the table that now means you can't see the bottom of the table. 
They're just one layer in that entire episode. But don't count on them. Distance is still your best friend. Distancing is what you must do. You don't want to be where there's bad air. You don't want to swap air with a case. And that's, I think, the important message. So go ahead, wear your face cloth coverings, but do not count on them as being the stopgap between you getting infected and not. Wise words, Dr. Michael Osterholm from the beautiful city of Minneapolis. Uh, I thank you so much. There's a million other things to talk about. Maybe there will be a next time. Well, thank you. And, you know, keep up the great work. I mean, as I said, we listen to you and uh, find that uh, in times like this, it's the kind of programs you do and the words that you do that uh, actually help us get through. As we all know, this is not just a physical event. This is a mental health event. And uh, we need the kinds of uh, discussions and the kinds of gifts that you bring us with this podcast. So my congratulations to you on behalf of a number of grateful listeners. Thank you, sir. Be well. You too. You've been listening to Talking Beats with Daniel Alchuk. I hope you'll subscribe and leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. The original theme music for this program is by Ronald Markham. The content coordinator is Nathaniel Mosse. Doug Christian is the executive producer. I'm Daniel Lalchuk. See you next time.